Before we begin, I want you to understand just how seriously I take my responsibility. The mere act of asking a question is the first step on the path to damnation. Heresy. The Imperium of Man was not built by those who questioned. It was built on the iron will of the Emperor, in the Orthodox, and above all, obedience. In our Imperium, we have a single institution that is pure enough to ask questions, and the Ordos of the Inquisition will now put you to the question. the podcast where each episode with the help of a guest or in this episode two guests we delve into a topic around 40k and this week I have with me Matt Everett who is a government statistician from the UK and we have Eric Lothran who is professor of epidemiology from the USA uh, and as you can imagine with epidemiology it's been a pretty quiet couple of years so um, it, he's been pretty bored and and has been looking for podcasts to appear on so hi guys how are you doing good how are you yeah good so eric runs the blog variance hammer and uh, that is going to be very relevant to today um, and he's also is the co-host of the Lost of the Nails podcast. You will probably already have heard my episode with Brian, who's also from that podcast. So it's all a bit incestuous today. So we're bringing in Matt, who's government statistician from the UK. Do you want to tell us a bit about your 40k and wargaming background? Yeah. Yeah, I will. I will say it's not linked. I'm not here in a in a professional governmental capacity today. I don't think. I don't think Boris has much skin in the 40k game. Um, well, he should do. Frankly, he's not a big fan of stratagems. <laughs> I mean, I I look at Rishi and see someone who could have like a custodes army just like tucked under. No, 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 no. Rishi is definitely much more of a Magic the Gathering guy. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Full. Cool. Right. I'm. I'm. I've already derailed this. Uh, where's my hobby? So I grew up on on Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, I played quite a lot of competitive Warhammer Fantasy in my in my late teens. Uh, I then did what I think a lot of people do. I, I fell off the wagon at university because I discovered girls and decided that that toy soldiers and girls weren't analogous. Um, that's not true. I want to put that message out there. First message for the day. I learned to own my nerdism and now I'm out proud nerd. Um, in terms of wargaming nowadays, I uh, I still play a bit of 40k. I've been picking up kind of a lot of what the the little system these days. Um, I think the the thing I'm probably most I don't want to say known for. I don't want to toot my own horn too much, um, but I, I do own a bucket a bucket of two thousand grots, which I did buy a bucket of five hundred dice for, which makes uh, rolling uh, rolling dice quite interesting as a stats person. <laughs> um, if you want to look for it on Twitter, there's a very very funny uh, video of Matt deploying in uh, square quotes um at warhammer world his bucket of grots which is literally tipping yeah. a bucket of those second edition monopose grots onto a table and people with their beautifully painted sort of carefully constructed armies around them <laughs> looking vaguely appalled just at yeah i guess what i'm trying to say i don't take my hobby too seriously these days um i definitely i have a few friends who play a lot of competitive so i end up talking about uh, you know 
math hammering a lot of stats things out with people um people do like to come and i'm sure eric you've had this people love to come with you with hard questions like is the old haywire better or is the new haywire better um <laughs> but you know i can see tom smirking on our cameras um but yeah so i i have retired the competitiveness i think a little bit uh in favor of a bit of fun yeah i mean i, I suspect you, these things come and go in waves and i know you well enough to know that you are somebody who follows their their sort of their passions and, and they they ebb and wane oh absolutely a little bit so you may well come back to that uh, i'm com- a competitive stuff at some i'm point. a hideous slave to my impulses yeah that's yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes and i'm sure that will come up later in the podcast um yeah and what about yourself eric um can you tell us a bit about your hobby history where you're at now and and what you're enjoying and what your passion is at the moment yeah so the the joke i have is i was sort of raised by war gamers my father was a, a hex encounter war gamer so i i got started early and i uh have, have been Sorry, the... when you're talking about hex things are you talking about the you know you're trying to fight the entire eastern front campaign over the course of months is, yes is, is that Somewhat, somewhere somewhere i have a copy of world in flames which is literally the entire second world war at I think the brigade level, um, some of some of them are quite complicated. The the ones I was playing when I was eight were not, um, but th- this was just sort of my um, hobby with my dad for a long time. We played you know Axis and Allies and things like that. I had a copy of uh, the old Battle Masters set, which was sort of a brilliant introduction to sort of the Warhammer world. Uh, and then I sort of took the opposite path of a lot of people took. I played mostly. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and RPGs through through most of high school, and then towards the end of high school, got interested in, in miniatures again. Played um, Mordheim because I could afford a skirmish game on a you know summer job salary. Uh, loved Mordheim, and then in college, um, got interested in the hobby, uh, partially because the person who ran the local gaming club was a girl, and uh, just sort of started playing with the. We had a sort of a loner army that I said, yeah, you know can I paint this and I'll, I'll end up playing it. My uh, little brother had right before I left for college, gotten the first Lord of the Rings miniatures game. And we sort of, you know, went to the GW store and learned how to paint with, you know, a dry brush and flesh wash and you can get a decent uruk done uh, in pretty short order. Uh, and then I've just sort of kept on that. I, I played mostly Warhammer fantasy battles for a while. Um, I spent a year in Ireland as an undergrad and decided I wanted to play while I was there because it was a good way to meet strangers in Ireland who I didn't live with. Uh, started a Sisters of Battle army and then sort of kept on and off with 40k. Um, as I, I moved around a lot, I went to grad school and ended up hopping around a lot for jobs and things like that. And so it was always helpful because everywhere there was a game store and that game store regardless of what the game was at the time that everybody was playing, everybody also played Warhammer. Um, and so then, yeah, I've, I've sort of settled into that. Uh, currently, I'm in a very, very narrative narrative kick. I think that's sort of where my my heart lies uh, for this game. I have I have gotten old and I'm no longer interested in, in high-end competitive play. Um, but yeah, that's that's been in a lot. I've been sort of hopping between projects. I am also sort of a, a slave to my passions and what interests me at the time one of the themes behind Lost the Nails is sort of just, you know, going down whatever hobby path is is the one that interests you the most right now. And for me, that's um, playing a lot with sort of weathering and things like that, um, doing a lot of narrative gaming. And then I've been really interested in sort of Games Workshop's 8mm specialist games. So Adeptus Titanicus, um, aka God's Most Perfect Game, 
Uh, Aeronautica. Have you played Aeronautica? Aeronautica. Aeronautica is is definitely the superior eight mil game. I'm just gonna throw out there. So Aeronaut- Aeronautica is is the the delicious appetizer before the main course. Um, <laughs> Listen, is, is... I will I will storm <laughs> off this podcast. Uh, they're, <laughs> they are both admittedly excellent games, and I love them both. <laughs> they are both superb. When we're talking about Matt being a slave to his passion, um, Matt now owns every single Sky Titanicus uh, release, and he's and he just kind of assemble those over the course of Most. three or four weeks it's all the plastics right yeah and then some of the resins i've got some i've got i've got a legal force of all however i, I do want to say at this point long time long time variant hammer fan and more of a fan though i know that more time is your big kick because before we started <laughs> recording i've literally just been building more time that's not relevant at all i'm gonna stop talking <laughs> no no it's great <laughs> um, i i have one little thing there is uh, Eric, you said that your first miniature was at Urukai, or kind of that was one of the first things where you really got into painting. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually really terrified. This means that I'm the grognard of the group because my first minis was like, you know, I got I got the RBT one set for forty k, and so that means that I was gaming in the mid to early nineties, and Lord of the Rings wasn't out yet. So I think. That makes me the, the yeah. That makes me the grognard. For for miniatures, yes, I was I was being an elitist text encounter gamer at the time. I see. I was I was also gaming mid early nineties. I was doing you know that one. I can't remember what it's called. It had hexes in it. It's someone you've got to, like get the block and put it through the right shape board. So you've got like a circle that goes to the circle <laughs> hole as well. Yeah, and then you had to change your nappy. Yeah, yeah. And I reckon I reckon no mid mid nineties. I was out of nappies probably. Hopefully, Some, sometimes you stuck it in your mouth and nod on it instead because <laughs> yeah. Not the, the the hex, not the nappy. To be clear, yeah, not the, <laughs> yeah, the hex, not the nappy. That's a horrible image, man. It is, isn't it? Let's play a game of things that won't make the final cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so in case it's not obvious to anyone from the theme of the guests we have on today, we're going to be dealing with numbers and statistics. But just to make this clear, this is not a math hammer episode. Um, This is not about the raw numbers. It's much more about our responses to numbers and the design of numbers, if that makes sense. And this has been, from my point of view, a really, really interesting episode to to work on because last time I did maths, I was 16. You know, this is not something that I'm familiar with. I have no background in any of this stuff. And listening to the guys chat and learning more about it has been really, really fantastic. And so hopefully we can we can communicate this across to you as how interesting numbers and the the sort of the cloud of of neural cognition around it um, is really, really interesting. And obviously how it interacts with wargaming and our decisions and so on. So just first. Um, can you just give us a quick down of what Math Hammer is? Sure. Uh, so Math Hammer at its core is sort of the idea that you are you are thinking about the game in a mathematical sense. And what most people mean when they say Math Hammer is they're sitting down with a, a unit and saying, okay, what should this unit do? If I have these, you know, 10 assault intercessors and they charge a unit of guardsmen, how many hits should they do? How many wounds should they do? How many you know, save should guardsmen fail, and thus how many guardsmen should I kill? And sort of thinking about the game in that sense, either to sort of think about units or to do things like make war gear choices. So like, okay, if I take these, um, I'm going to use Sisters of Battle because that's the army I'm playing right now. 
if I take these with heavy flamers or heavy bolters, what what difference will that make? Which one should I choose? Um, how big a deal is this reroll if I get that? Um, that's the sort of thing behind Math Hammers is thinking about just the, the probability that comes as part of the game because it's a dice game and trying to sort of reason about that in what is often sort of what people jokingly refer to as a sort of a white room simulations from like the Matrix or something like that where you have you know, this this lone squad of, of guardsmen being shot at by space marines. That's the only thing that's happening, and that's all we're asking about. Um, and so that's that's sort of the, the core of Math Hammers, is asking those questions about what the performance of a, a unit sort of should be mathematically. And to be blunt, is all of us use that. I mean, like, there is yeah. an element in which even somebody who is as narrative as they come will be able to go... That's a good choice. So, you know, the the most narrative of systems, uh, Horus Heresy. Um, you know, <laughs> there's there's a huge narrative online all the time about we are the narrative gamers, we are the ones who do this. However, when it came out that you could have flamers which did rending, which at the time with the saving system is flamers were you you were you were you were going into a three up save, but if you rolled sixes to wound, it wiped that out, and so you had big rhinos full of full of rhino um flamer toting veterans who could get this these rending flamers yeah people want their stuff to be good as well as thematic and you can usually find a way yeah we, we just even if you're a narrative player and there's nothing wrong with that we're not we're not casting any aspersions on you know kind of working out what's good but we all do this to an extent so and when the jukari codex came out in ninth edition and dark lance's became the first weapon which just came on your basic transports to be a d3 plus three damage and everyone was able to just look at the codex and go i'm taking raiders anyway because raiders are the way i keep my infantry alive before they do stuff and the dark glance is just clearly even if it costs more it's just a really good option but as i said this is not a math hammer podcast so matt do yeah. you want to talk to us a bit about what we're going to be doing instead this episode so today we're going to be talking broadly about why people's dice don't hate them uh, people love to kind of build this narrative and everyone knows someone who only rolls ones and i can guarantee you as a statistician the one guarantee i will give you for certain is that person does not only roll ones that person probably doesn't roll a statistically different amount of ones that person probably doesn't like as much as they think they might they don't uh, and i can tell you this one reason the first reason is that I cannot. I can tell you three people I know who only roll ones. I can't tell you a single person who only rolls twos, who only rolls threes, who only rolls fours, who only rolls fives. No one only rolls twos. Everyone always rolls ones. That's it. And so, what we're going to be talking about today is how we utilize and misunderstand. I think statistics a lot. Um, I think people have a kind of an innate ability to understand basic statistics. Even I don't understand like a lot of statistics at the same time. Uh, I'm going to throw a question to you in a minute, Tom, so be prepared. And we're going to talk basically about how people's choices are impacting things that we have math hammered out. Sure. And the introduction, which I'd written down on our show notes, was Mm. where you guys said, math hammer is not hard. Yep. Given a spreadsheet and a few minutes of thinking, you can generally work out pretty well i mean there's there's the, the math hammer website um or app which you just punch in and they will give you a, they will give you the average damage mm-hmm. or the average outcomes yeah working out averages is 
basic division and multiplying fractions. Like, Yeah, and so that stuff isn't hard. The problem is our response to variability. Yeah. And the, the lovely phrase that somebody used uh, was our flawed meat brain's response to probability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, one of the big things behind all this is that, you know, while we can do this, human beings are not calculators. We're savannah pursuit predators with pretension. And that becomes important because how we perceive probability, how we react to this math, is what's actually impacting the game. It's not just the number. Because if, if it was just the number, you could sort of have a computer play at 40k and it would say, you know, oh, the Space Marines win this battle. And we'd all go, okay, cool, and move on with our lives. And that's that's not how we, we play this game. And we are, human beings are very bad at probability. Mm. Um, and one of the examples you were using about um, 70% is is a key threshold. When people are told that something is 70% probable, then essentially most people treat it as a huge likelihood, when actually it's only a little better than two in three. It's, it's the same as rolling a three plus. It's, 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 it's the power on the save, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it's actually, you have a significant chance of failure, but people think 70% is, is almost analogous to kind of 95%. It's, it's, it's a fairly minimal chance of failure in, in, our, in our brains. Um, and the other thing is that we, uh, I'm not sure who said it, but humans are bad at random. So do you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. So, so one of the things is, is when humans perceive what we think of as random, we mean there's lots of different numbers. If you roll four dice, you get, you know, a one, a three, a four, and a six. And we're like, okay, that's random. If you roll those four dice and you get four ones, we go, well, that's not very random. So you can, you can look at this. There's sort of, there's an innocuous example, and then there's one that actually sort of pertains to the, the real world. Um, I had a professor who had every every year for one of our first classes would have four students flip a coin and write down heads or tails. And he'd have four students write down what they thought a random sequence of heads or tails would look like. And he could tell with pretty much 100% accuracy who was flipping the coin and who was choosing the random numbers because human brains don't like repeated sequences. So, you know, you do you heads, tails, heads, tails, tails, heads, tails. Whereas with a coin, if it's fair, you will occasionally get a streak of six tails because that's just how probability works. And humans don't like that. And so you, you'd see those sequences. Uh, this happens in cryptography a lot um, because you can tell things that aren't random um, because humans have chose them. So in the, the Second World War... Uh, there's there's all kinds of fun cryptography stories about the Second World War because it was sort of the height of, of human beings figuring out cryptography. Uh, the German Enigma machine had settings that were supposed to be randomly generated, but they actually weren't. They'd be changed to be more random. Someone would have a favorite number. You know, they'd, they'd start with a sequence that was somebody's favorite number or a girlfriend's name or something like that. And you could start to develop and see signatures in what should have been random noise because essentially our brains were going, well, that's not random enough. I'll add some randomness to it. And in the process of that, they took randomness away. I'm going to, I'm going to throw you a question, Tom, and this might horribly backfire. Uh, following on from my example, what's the probability of tossing six heads in a row? Um, 
if I if I do it a hundred times or percentage wise. Well, I mean, it's it it's fifty point five by by point five by point. No, it's not because you've got to. Well, it's fifty percent. What does your gut say? Fifty percent. Yeah. Um. Well, it's about one in thirty six. No, it's not quite. So it's it's about two percent ish. According according to my binomials, and we're going to talk about binomials today. I'm going to choose the word now. Binomials, a fancy word of saying, is it yes or is it no? Um, ju- so I'm just going to kind of slightly overcut, but it seems like a good time to introduce the concept. Uh, anytime we talk, everything to do with statistics, to do with Warhammer, is basically a coin toss, right? It's just a slightly loaded coin. A dice, you know, needing a three plus to hit, is realistically flipping a coin, which comes up heads 66% of the time. Like, it's a yes or a no, it's a pass or fail option. But there's no graduated like no. kind of draw or anything. And, this is a, a pass yeah. or failure, and it's just where the line is. Yeah, and there us. occasionally are. So uh, just to, I'm going to bring it back to 40k and just throw one out there. I'm aware there are weapons that do extra effects on a four plus or a six plus. Yes, I'm aware those exist. <laughs> but in, in the general sense, you could probably aggregate an entire game of 40k down to one coin toss because it's just a series of of yes or no decisions, right? It's just a series of. Do do you hit? Yes, cool. Do I save? No. Okay, cool. Well, that's just two coin tosses in a row. Do that ten times. That's twenty coin tosses in a row, kind of thing. Hmm. The um, well, going back to my uh, going back to Eric's point on cryptography, I'm just going to throw a random anecdote in here. One of my favourite examples of this, and this comes on to what we're going to talk about in a bit. I think about uh, emotions and numbers. Uh, famed mathematician Richard Feynman reckoned that he could crack any safe in six minutes. And he wouldn't ever do it in, and and he would sneak into his um, fellow professors' uh, labs and basically break into their safes. And he did it, not using any fancy maths, not using any kind of prediction. He used it because he knew that like eighty percent of people, he could guess what it was based on things like dates. People love patterns and numbers. People love emotions and numbers. And so we pick something we know we're going to remember. What am I going to remember? I'll remember my birthday. I remember my wife's birthday. I remember dates of important things. So if you are, you know, if, if I asked you to come up with a random, you know, number now, the like, you know, for a safe or something, the odds are it will start with one nine because you were born in the nineteenth century, uh, sorry, twentieth century. Your wife was born twentieth century. It might start two zero because of your kids, but people love attaching emotion to numbers, and I think that's what we're going to talk a bit about today as well. Sure, um, and one of the. Um, one of the concepts you guys came uh, introduced me to is the law of large numbers. Um, so can you just, at this point, tell us what that is? Put, put very simply, uh, the law of large numbers basically says that the more times you do a thing, the more likely rare things are to happen, right? So, for example, uh, the best way I can describe it to you is the odds of you going out and buying a lottery to- ticket and winning are about one in, I think, 20-something million now. Very unlikely. So the odds of you winning the lottery tomorrow are vanishingly small. The odds of anyone winning the lottery tomorrow are pretty high. Because twenty if 20 million tickets are bought, and the odds are 1 in 20 million, well, statistically, one of those tickets is going to be a winning ticket. In the same way, if you roll a dice once, you, your probability of you know, getting an average roll on a dice, which is, we won't talk about the fact that an average on a d6 is 3.5. The, the odds of you rolling an average dice roll on one dice are far less likely than you rolling an average dice roll if you average out a thousand dice rolls. Okay. And um, on on 40k, yeah, we're only 
sort of talking about a few hundred dice at most and unless you're unless you're doing your grot challenge in which case you genuinely do have um you know 2000 pistols to shoot and does that level of predictability kick in over those numbers there's not a this is the number at which the law of large numbers applies it kind of depends what you're rolling for there is an accepted kind of so my um my my undergraduate degree was in psychology so we did a lot of uh, statistical testing for probability uh, there's a general rule of like 30 trials is about as many as you need to get a good kind of general representation of what you're doing if it's randomly distributed. So a, a dice is randomly distributed and a fair dice will have an even chance of being a one or a six or a two. Um, but there is no, the law of large numbers doesn't say if it is this many trials, then this is likely to happen. It simply says the more times you do this thing, the more likely it is that your that the average of the whole sequence will be met. So if you roll a, a dice a hundred times, it's more likely to have exactly as many ones as sixes, uh, more than is likely to roll six dice. Say. Okay, so you're more likely to have out low outliers at that lower end. Yeah, and I think one of the the answers, and this is a sort of a, a canonical epidemiologist answer, is it depends. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're talking about the total number of dice rolled in a forty k game, and you say I have written down every d six result you rolled. And I'm going to tell you the average of those rolls. The answer is probably it's pretty close to 3.5, because you are starting to hit the sort of we're, we're converging. We're converging on the average. The law of large numbers is starting to kick in. The key is is as you sort of think about 40k games as happening on multiple scales. The law of large numbers definitely hasn't kicked in for the three saving throws you have to make on your smash captain. Or the one roll you're making on that Laz cannon that will, you know, win you the game or not. You ab- you're you absolutely not there. And so I think that's the key is, is when we think about 40k, while the game may be working on those large average probabilities, that's not how we think about the game. No one steps back and goes, well, you know, most of my saves were passed. It was fine. They remember certain key roles where you're like okay this was to use a game recently this was the the one turn my sisters about retributors fired at a necron monolith there's only like 10 roles in that and that's that's definitely not enough yeah and so that's that's sort of the the things you you start getting is as you get sort of more and more granular about thinking and a lot of math hammer is done on sort of an individual unit does something else to an individual unit or a single weapon fires a single you know round of shooting what should it do the law of large numbers definitely hasn't kicked in at that point and so that's where you're subject to that variability you know you can roll three ones and nothing worked even though yes over the course of the whole game your dice were average especially because functionally that's one event right so if I have, for example, if I have five saves, to, uh, five saves to make on my war boss, that those five saves aggregate into one thing, which is again this binary choice: my warlord lives, my warlord dies. So, kind of that that whole, like when you talk about how kind of you know we we have these these condensed moments. Actually, those moments are condensed down even further into the dice are contributing to a single one single binary outcome: I die, I don't die, my unit, you know wipes out another unit, it does my power, you know, I make all my, that kind of thing. 
And you were talking, Matt, about um, this kind of sample size of roughly 30 to be to be kind of have a have a, a reasonably good idea. Now, I don't think I've ever played 30 games with the same army list. I mean, I, I probably change it every two, three games at least um, because I get bored quicker than that. Um, and so I would on that basis, I would suggest that I've never really known what my army can do. Now, with my current army, which is Harlequins, um, they've got a very limited roster, so I probably have come closer than most, although I tend to sort of chop up my loadouts and, and so on. But I, I think probably that does mean I've got a better understanding of that army on that basis than, than any other. Um, that's really interesting, though. So what does this all actually mean, then? So saying 40k, 40K stats are simple and you can write an equation but so what are what are the decision making metrics we use in these cases so uh, Eric was for it's all about i guess uh it's all about the point of the game and the point of the game is to have a good time and i mean that a in the sense of me sitting here throwing dice with you and and us having a nice chat having a drink whatever uh but also it's about that kick of endorphins we get and we're going to kind of veer slightly off here like when something good happens to you you get a kick of of nice endorphins and when something bad happens to you you get a kick of well that felt rubbish i don't want this to happen to me again and that i think is something that when we talk about decision making that is what it fundamentally comes down to will will the decision i'm about to make make me feel good or will it make me feel bad and the problem is it's really hard to judge that because if you think about it, a decision I'm likely to make that will make me feel good is either one that is successful. So something, you know, my space marine saving is three up save. That is something that is likely to be successful. So against the last gun, my marine isn't likely to die. Or something that is spectacularly stupid and works. For example, my three uh, my three guardsmen shooting and taking the last three wounds off of Gaskell. That shouldn't happen, but it did. But what you have is you have the same emotional response of that was something good and it made me feel happy. That is attributed to something which is perfectly normal and attributed to something that was good because it was just so wacky. And the thing that was really wacky makes me feel better because it was something that is outright bizarre. But all I remember is that I made this decision and it made me feel good. And importantly, those decisions are also not those don't also impact you equally. So if we look at human cognition and how we respond to um, probabilistic things, uh, there's, there's sort of two things that I think factor in a lot for games. Uh, humans are risk averse. Uh, we don't like losing things we expected more than we like winning things we didn't expect. So that, that space marine failing his save will hurt a little bit more than those three sort of YOLO guardsmen killing Gasgol. Um, and at the same time, we also tend to strongly remember the last thing that happened. Uh, this is something the travel industry exploits. Um, they, they go out of their way to make sure your last memory of a place is a good one, because that is what you will remember most from a visit to some place. Um, and I actually have a 40K example of this. Um, when I was in Dublin, I went to my very first tournament. Um, it was the Dublin GT at the time, uh, I was playing Sisters of Battle. No one really knew how to 
fight Sisters of Battle because they were a newish army in third edition and they were all metal. Um, I did really, really well. Got up to sort of the top tables. Uh, faced a Slanesh Demon player when Slanesh Demons were a thing that could be at the top table of a GT. Um, and it came down to my Exorcist was lined up against uh, their Demon Prince. The Exorcist rolls a random number of shots. The guy said, you know, if you roll a six, you win this game. And I rolled a one. That is the only thing I actually remember from that tournament. Everything else I sort of have to reconstruct. I have this vague notion that I played an Iron Wars player and won somehow. And that's about it. Because that was that was also the last, basically the last thing I did. Like, I didn't kill his demon prince. His demon has gotten into combat with my army and immediately devoured it. And that was that was the, the best I'd ever done in a tournament. And that's what I remember. And so those are those are both things that sort of mean not only do we sort of remember those decisions and the things we like that, you know, give us that endorphin hit because they're a, a reliable endorphin hit and the ones that are unlikely, those are also weighted by whether we were expecting them and lost it or weren't expecting them and got it. And those have different weights. And genuinely when it happens, you know, things fall apart late in a game hurts a lot more than like, man, but turn one, I was just rocking. It just doesn't matter as much. Helpfully, the second most memorable thing, uh, so call a recent select, the second most memorable thing is what we call primacy effect. Uh, so we also remember things that happened really early on. <laughs> but recent things were... <laughs> Sorry, this, this is, this is um, like many, many hands make like work and too many chefs uh, spoil the broth, isn't it? This, this, this is quite opposing points. Uh, so... Yeah, so you have primacy and recency effects. Um, they they kind of interact in different ways, but the the more recent is is better because it happened physically more recently. Like we we are still more likely to have it in our in our memories. Um, and I think the the other thing to point out there is the the other reason that you remember that is because it was really polarized. And I think this is the other thing. Like we we remember things that are very polarizing. You know, it's it's the very classic. Uh, I mean, for our generation. I don't want to bring I don't want to bring the mood down too much, but everyone remembers where they were on 9-11. I remember where I was on that day. I don't remember where I was the day before. I don't remember where I was a week later. I don't remember where I was it, this time last year, Tom, where were you? Probably here. Yeah, okay. I mean, okay, we've just been locked down. Bad example. <laughs> Abs- absent, absent a pandemic, it's, it's harder to do that. And yeah, I think, and what's important is that while the, the primacy and recency effects both exist, and, and they sort of feel like they're in contradiction with each other, there is the important middle bit that has no effect. You know, turn two and three sort of get lost regardless of what happens. Um, you know, you, you feel good turn one and you sort of remember that because it was the start of the game. You you remember turn five or six because that was the end. You know, the, the, the middle bit starts to blur. And so the things that happen there, you know, which is ironically because of the way, you know, unit attrition works in the game, where most of your dice are being rolled doesn't stick as well in memory. And so that's where this sort of the how human brains work starts conflicting with statistics is that you start forgetting some of the things that mattered and you don't factor into that into your notion of, well, how well did this unit hmm. do? And would uh, a, a top level competitive player just be better at that bit then? Would they be able to remember those things or would they have in their testing and so on have 
gained those expectations um, and be able to better assess at the time but wouldn't necessarily have that same that same memory fuzzing in the middle so the the other thing to consider with 40k is that your list the list you take and the army you use and how well you use it is a modifier for your luck so the better the list you have the more practice you are on that list the more you can ride a bit of bad luck um so a they're likely to be successful because they have something that is well honed and so is less sensitive to swings in in their kind of uh is less sensitive to the variability of their dice but i think also the thing and we were talking about this at the beginning eric uh, i know very few people i know several people who've played for team, team england and such uh, and i know very few people who have played hundreds if not thousands of games who think that they only roll ones but i've met lots of people who play casual lists spattering here and there who think they only roll ones and i think this in a perverse way comes back to the same principle of the law of large numbers like so like eric had uh eric remembers his uh his retributive firing one uh one shot in that game because that is a relatively unique memory i don't want to dunk on your on your abilities here at all eric but I kind of can't imagine that kind of most people don't end up on top tables at GTs on a routine basis. If you're someone like uh, Manny Chima, for example, who ends up on top tables in most GTs he goes to, you kind of you have a large bank of memories of things that happened in the last turn of your top table game to kind of draw on. Whereas if you're Eric, all you remember is, oh, I'm never trusting my retribution in the last turn, uh, last turn of the game against it, it always lets me down. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's a, a larger sample. Yeah, I think that's there's there's a couple keys there. I think that, you know, and I think the biggest one is a larger sample. You know, if you've been at a bunch of top tables, you've seen your stuff do well, you've seen your stuff do poorly, you've seen a lot of your stuff do average. It's it's less sort of searing in your mind that like, oh, you know, this is literally, I can count on one hand how many times I have been at the top table in any event. Um, and you know, so yeah, like more than one fifth of those was this single event versus, yeah, if you're a serious, you know, team England or in the U S like an ITC player, like you've got a lot bigger sample size there, which I think is important. I think the other thing that you, you have to understand and, and sort of think about is a lot of this is, I think a worse player. And, and I would put myself in this category is more in need of the dice breaking their way. They're more in need of that six to push them over. The average player is average. And so for them to do better than average, they need something to break in their favor. And that something in a random game is their dice. And so, yeah, you know, if I roll a couple key sixes, that's enough of an outlier to maybe push me into a higher bracket for this game. Versus if you simply are a better player, you know, if you're Richard Siegler, you don't, you don't need your dice to do well for you. You have put yourself in a position where your army performing basically the way it should perform is enough to get you to those top tables. So I think there's that. The other thing I think is, and this is actually, I think a really good sort of example of this is Adam Abramowitz had a podcast for a while called The Best General, which was his quest to win a GT. And is sort of the hero's arc narrative between a, a pretty good, but middle of the road player and someone who wins a GT. And he had a lot of people on that trying to understand various aspects of competitive play importantly math hammer only comes up once or twice and it's not just the people who are winning 40k games are not people who do math better in their head they're people who manage to play the game well enough that the math stops mattering as much and that they've positioned themselves in a way where they're not relying on that variability to be the thing that brings them over the top 
very, very rarely, I think, is it that the person at the top tiers is just better at thinking about the math of this game than you are. Although they do certainly sit down and like when they're talking about designing lists, there, there are no arbitrary choices in their lists. And I think that's where sort of the competitive side of Math Hammer comes in is there are no choices that are largely made for aesthetics or, well, because I like it. Like, no, what your Smash Captain is carrying is known to be the best combination because we have done the math on this. You know, what, what your tank is armed with. If you want this to kill, you know, vehicles, you need to take X, Y, and Z. That bit is, is math hammered out and is not on the fly or like, well, my codex says it's a good anti-tank weapon, so it must. But that's not. But that's not in game. That's before the first dice is yeah. rolled. That stuff is set in their head and that's where they're doing their maths. And when they're in game, knowing their list and having redundancy and so on, that they will be able to say, I need to push onto this objective and that thing needs to die. But in order to kill that thing, I have six different weapons which can all do that job. And so I'm beginning to cut down on that variability. And so it doesn't require you to roll those sixes. It doesn't require you to be better than average. It's just they are in control of their general expectations. Yeah. There's a very good statistically logical proof of this as well. So ITC events, generally speaking, there will always be several websites who will make their business out of publishing the list that so-and-so just won the so-and-so big tournament with. Now, uh, for example, if we take the last LVO, the, the big rack pain train was was the list that was was doing the heavy lifting, right? You know, 100 odd racks and, and whatever else. Okay, so just to go into a tiny bit of detail, mm -hmm. racks are um, Drakari unit. Super tough. Well, they're not innately, but you can very easily add layers yeah. of durability on them. Yeah. And they're a very cheap unit and their objective secured. And so you can essentially just swamp the board with a lot of very durable bodies and you can't cut through them enough to win. Um, so, yeah, sorry, Karen. 40k is about two things, being somewhere or killing something. And racks are very good at being somewhere. Like, that's how you score points in 40k. But we know that list had been out for a while we it wasn't a surprise that anyone showed up for LVO list and multiple like many people showed up with that list and yet the, the names we see in the top eight are the same as we see almost every year pretty much there's always one or two surprise inclusions in the same way if you look at any kind of major gt event people show up with lists that aren't hugely surprising like there, there are exceptions to the rule but there are people show up with lists that aren't hugely surprising and yet the same people end up at the top of the stack if they're there and what this proves is if you have 10 people who... So there were definitely 10 people who showed up to the LVO with the same rack list, right? If the list... If the math hammer was what made that list good, then you would expect that one of those 10 people might be in the top eight. But there is no guarantee as to who that player should be. There's no reason it should be Manny. There's no reason it shouldn't be Steve from Halifax who flew out last week on a trip of a lifetime. Your chance of succeeding that list should be evenly distributed. So we should see a random person with that list in, a, in, in that good position. The fact that we see people taking the same list and ending up in such wildly varying positions means either, one, players are consistently getting very easy rides through. So someone like Manny, for example, is getting consistently easy rides through and never fighting anyone hard, and that's how they get to the top of the pack. Two, there's something more to it than the Math Hammer. People love a netlist and they never win. Like, you don't ever see people who, you know, like the LGT, the London GT, um, you know, like, you don't see people netlisting and winning those events so that's because netlists are 
sort of internet hypotheticals as much as anything. Yeah, if you don't know how it plays, it doesn't matter how good the list is. I couldn't take uh, the list that won the LBO and go and win our local tournament, let alone a GT event, you know. And that's... Well, I suspect that that's not quite true um, because you are actually somebody who's, you know, you play competitive stuff. I think if you took if you took the power list, and it does seem that the current Tau are overly powerful compared yeah. to a normal i mean statistically speaking it, it appears that they are you know i think i think that they, they've started off with a 70 percent win rate which is absolutely obscene when you know kind of even 55 to 60 percent win rates are are tend to be um you know considered to be overpowered but Admet got the same last year Drakari got the same when they came out death guard did similar uh, dark angels very brief like new new list will always do well because they're a unfamiliar and b um, and I don't, th- I don't judge them for this. G Dub has new toys to sell. The new things are gonna be good, right? Like, and I don't begrudge them that. Forty K is, and I don't want to get onto the subject of forty K balance, but forty K is balanced because everyone gets their day in the sun. Everyone gets the time to be overpowered, and I think that's kind of the way that you balance something as complex as forty K. <laughs> but it is actually a good, a sort of example, and I think a good point. Um, I will, I will use use me as an example because I'm at best a mediocre player. Um, I, I like, I like slumming it in the the middle and bottom tables. Uh, our our local tournament back in sort of the height of Craftworld Eldar are ridiculous in seventh edition. I had sort of drifted up to the top tables again, essentially being carried by the strength of my codex, um, and then hit the Eldar players who were good at playing Eldar. And I had a list very similar to their lists, and I just got outplayed at every opportunity. Like their stuff didn't die, my stuff did. Why am I behind on objectives and kills and everything else? What is even happening? I don't belong here. Despite having what is the, you know, I had wave serpents, scatter bikes, and farseers. Like, I, I had the core of a dangerous Eldar list, and it had been being a dangerous Eldar list for most of the day. If you hit good players who sort of know what they're doing, or I've, I've used the sort of opposite thing, I'm pretty sure I could get, you know, give someone like Richard Siegler or Nick Nadavati an arbitrary list of models I have and they would absolutely just destroy me because they're better at playing the game in a way that the math can't carry me through. And I think, I think that's the key is, is that the math is, the math is there to help them make informed decisions, but it's not the stats, you know, it's, it's not that, you know, one of these top tier tournament players is just better at rolling dice than you are. That's, ridiculous like you you factor when you whenever you build anything like i was saying earlier, you, when you build a list if you're building a list in an effective manner so the reason the rack list works well is because it's a very low risk list for that rack list to work so let's let's unpick that as kind of a, a good example of um how you kind of build variability into a list so here's here's a pro list tip building from me uh the rack list works well for one reason which it requires very little for it to go right for it to do well as in if as as we said before, you can stand somewhere or you can kill something, right? That's that's how you score points in 40k. You claim your objectives, and then you can pick what you want to do and how you want to score. And you can pick two thirds of those to be by merit of owning objectives and by standing in this place, I'm going to score points. For that rack list to work, what needs to happen? You need to get your buffs off, so you need to make sure you haven't got anything that's like negating stratagems, negating auras or stuff. And then you need to make sure that your opponent doesn't roll so hot that they negate those buffs, right? So if you're looking at, you know, 
I, I can't remember what the exact buff on the racks are, and I haven't done the maths. But so um, basically, you've got it's a I believe it's a toughness four unit. Uh, if you stand near your character, then it becomes a toughness five unit. Um, you can give it um, some way of getting a I think it's a five up shrug on it and possibly there's a five or six up invulnerable save on it as well so you've got sort of layers three of, layers yeah. of above average so like toughness five um and an invuln which is obviously you know you, because it's an invuln it doesn't get it doesn't get taken down like a normal arm save and you've got the shrug as well and, and two of those are ways of just negating stuff that would go through other things um, I think there may even be stratagems for bringing standing back up at the end. Um, I can't remember exactly, but but it's as Matt says, you're not rolling dice for that. You're just you're making the opponent roll dice into that. And this is it. And your opponent, your opponent is rolling dice anyway. Your opponent is rolling to kill your racks, whatever happens. So what you are the, the way that list works is you are increasing so if you're playing that list what you're doing by stacking those things up you're not making me do something new you're not making me do something different you're not making me play differently i'm still going to kill i you know i'm going to try and destroy your racks either way what you are doing is making sure that the variability the variance i need so the the the, the amount of swing that i can afford in my dice is less i have to roll consistently better or consistently average to kill those racks and if you make them harder i have to roll better and that list works really well because what it's done is it's just removed the risk. Like the risk to me of failing all those saves, I won't go into maths because we promised there would be no maths, but the risk inherent in the list is much smaller than the list and that's why it works. And you can see this for lists that the, the opposite approach for killing. One of the reasons uh, Sisters of Battle Repentia are so popular um, in sort of higher end lists for that is they're extremely reliable on the other end because it doesn't... So Repentia are the close the, combat... The, um, scantily clad sisters. sisters with the two-handed chainswords. Um, they are extremely dangerous. They're also extremely fragile. But importantly, they fight on death. So it doesn't matter how well you roll. I still get to attack you. It doesn't matter if you interrupt the combat sequence to hit them first. I still attack you. Um... They're they're going to they are very likely going to die although they are more durable than they feel like thanks to a, a shrug, and they're very durable in crusade as an aside. But generally speaking, for competitive play, they are going to die, and that doesn't matter. They are going to get their attacks, and so the same thing is true. I've reduced my variability. The only thing that has to happen for them to not work is I have to roll particularly badly. It doesn't matter. Or they don't make they it. Don't make it in the, they fail their charge. And there's a bunch of ways to tweak it so that they won't fail their charge. Um, they have to whiff like all their hits or something like that. I have to roll very badly for Repentian not to do their job. And it doesn't matter how, you know, I can charge them into a unit of your super scary, you know, Deathwing Knights or, you know, whatever. You can absolutely slaughter them and they're still going to get to hit. And that's what they're there for, is to swing their chainsword once and kill a bunch of dudes. And so that's that's sort of that same sort of reduction of variability approach is saying, okay, this will then very reliably be able to do the thing. 
and you can see this in in even in to to bring it back to a much more narrative game in Horus Heresy, the ability for I think it's both the Iron Warriors and the Imperial Fists for your opponent to choose whether or not the game goes to turn six <laughs> is a big deal. Because how many yes. of us have had a, man, I really, really, really need the game to end now. And if it ends now, I win. But everything's sort of coming apart. And so if it doesn't end now, things get much dicier. For your opponent to just be able to choose whether or not that keeps going is a huge disadvantage. You know, you read and you're like, okay, so that's a that's an okay disadvantage. It's actually a really big deal for your opponent to be like, nope, the game goes longer. Because I say it does. But that's not something that um, I suspect most people would think about when they're looking at their army buffs because it doesn't apply for the vast majority of the game. It's this is one, as you say, crucial moment, but it's one moment which happens right at the end. And when we're planning people tend to, just going back to um, that's of the internet, um, kind of look at this combo I can get off with, uh, look, I can kill Mortarian in turn one with planet bowling ball, so all my guns can shoot, using this level of five stratagems, with all my auras in place, negating cover, everything's in range. The Mortarian is not in range of any of his support, there's no lookout sirs. All of the planning that we tend to put in place is at that start. Um, in chess, loads of people know the openings, but when it gets to the end game, they depend on having two rooks who can leapfrog each other and push the knight, push the king into into the back line. You know, the, the actual finishing is something which we don't spend nearly as much time on. Um, I used to work at uh, Harper Collins doing sports books. Um, and one of the one of the revolutionary books about golf, which we tended to produce every year, there was a, a coffee table book which people would buy for their dads or husbands for Christmas, and uh, they were always marketed exclusively at men. Um, that's why I say that it was it was a very very um, formulaic uh, release we did every year, and it was always a famous golfer saying something about you know trite platitudes about their game. And one year we we changed it up completely. And that was because the professional golfer said that you should spend much more time putting. And that's how you should that's how you should practice, because actually finishing and getting the ball in the hole is the point. It's not how far you can drive. Anyone can drive a ball so far. But actually putting is a skill which people don't practice nearly much. You go to driving ranges, but, you know, putting ranges are considered for, you know, dilettantes and students um, and and so there is that element that we think about what to do at the beginning when our whole army is shiny and new and not to do at the end when most of our army is degraded or gone in for the, for the most part this is a really interesting stats point and i kind of want to steal steal your thunder a little bit and uh, and jump in because so there on my i have a stats bookshelf which is unfortunately downstairs like shay uh, and I've got lots of books about statistics. I've got my university textbooks. I've got textbooks on different types of survival analysis I've done for stuff. And then the other book that lives on that shelf is a copy of Just So Stories, um, which is signed and inscribed to me by my university tutor who got me into statistics. And the exact thing you're talking about there is exactly the thing with statistics. We have this big thing, so where I work. Um, I promise it wasn't about and it's nothing to do with how I work, but 
the point of statistics, especially in a 40k kind of perspective, is it is how we tell the story of the game. Statistics for me, and I'm sure kind of in you know in the in the world you work as well, Eric, statistics isn't about, you know, whoever I'm talking to doesn't have time and doesn't care. You know, I I'm paid to do statistical testing and tell you if it's significant or not. And they don't care if it's significant or not. They care about the story. They care about so what, what does this mean? And this is the same thing we talk about here, the kind of ending of the game, because the ending of the game is narratively a, a story of what's happened throughout that game. Oh, my end game has to do, like, my starting position, as you say, is very prescribed. I know where I deploy everything, but where those units end up at the end of the board is going to depend on what my opponent did, where my opponent moved, uh, if there was suddenly a quarter I could claim, if suddenly that unit just died unexpectedly. Every single event that happens during the game leads up to the story of how the game ends. And that is a just full-on chain of statistical coin tosses, right? Whether you you know, whether you manage to wipe out my unit or not turn one and I've suddenly got an extra five guardsmen to go and claim that table quarter, or whether, you know, I've managed to kill your warlord early, whatever it is, it is a just a culmination of all of the things that happened. And this is why a lot of games this is why 40k is weirdly balanced as a game, because like we were saying earlier on, you know, it, probabilistically, it doesn't matter. Kind of the law of large numbers doesn't matter when you're rolling three armor saves on a dude. It doesn't matter when you are, you know, rolling ten shots, or whatever. But it does come into play when you look at the outcome of all of those things and where that ends up. And that should, over the course of the game, we should have about even luck, which means that actually what ends up affecting the game and the story more is kind of the choices that we've made along the way. And, and the dice that come out of that. Does that make sense? I might have just rambled nonsensically for five minutes. <laughs> no, no, a perfect sense, uh, or at least from my end. What about you? So it's, it's definitely something I talk to my, my students actually about is, you know, when I when they have their papers, I, I read the method section and I make sure it's okay. But where we spend most of the time is the crafting of the narrative. Okay, so what does this mean? Uh, I, I have a sort of flippant expression for this, you know, no, no congressperson has ever been persuaded by a proof. That's probably true. You know, you, you need the story behind things. And there's a there's a concept in, in game design where this comes in, which is essentially all, all 40K is, is this is this idea of emergent narrative, which is essentially that the, the randomness in the game is what's helping you tell a story. And that that... 40K being dice-generated moments of all. Exactly. And you can get very extreme versions of this. So there's a, a solo war game that game I've been playing recently called Five Parsecs from Home, which is it's just a, an exercise in this. Like you have this little 30 minute battle with a very simple combat system. And then there's many D100 tables you roll afterwards to tell the story about this game. But that is that is the thing you're doing is, OK, so this was the heroic stand of this squad because they rolled really well. Or, you know, what is it? What does it mean that turn one, you know, your land raider blew up and all your guys got piled out and had to walk across the board. You know, how do you tell the story of that? And that's what the dice are generating. Because the average the average game of 40k is what you get from reading the tournament statistics things, where the answer is, okay, if you fight Tau, the Tau won. Um, but the question is, okay, so how did that happen? What happened during that game? What sort of cool moments were there. And I think this is one of the things, and it's actually the, the tagline of, of Variance Hammer that is the dice gods favor the bold. 
and that's not actually true. Um, but it is it is a thing I always say in games because those are the things that create really narratively satisfying moments. Is that is that you know okay my you know I I at LBO one year back in seventh edition there was a night joust the night before, um, and I said the the very dangerous question should I danger close this. And my brother, who was probably the, the embodiment of dice-generated moments of awesome, was like, well, of course you should. You always should. I proceeded to blow up three knights, one of which was mine. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It's unlikely, and it's great. And I think that's one of the things that makes narrative players, or at the very least me as a narrative player, actively worse at this game from sort of a, a gameplay perspective, is that I'm operating under a different criteria than a lot of other people. The so this is actually a really a really great point um, that I want to really sort of hone in on. Is, is what you're saying is that you're actually taking deliberately suboptimal choices because you want those statistical outliers to occur. So you want you want those moments because you want those memories and those, those endorphin rushes like Matt was talking yeah. about before, rather than because you're expecting it. Yeah. Because, because this is a low consequence game for me. You know, there, there, there's never going to be an article on spiky bits about how, you know, on stream in turn four, Eric did something stupid and that's why he lost the LVO. It's going to be like, <laughs> yeah, but remember that one time when, I, like, for example, I, I have a, a Palatine who is a glorified Primaris Lieutenant for the Sisters of Battle. She's not good in close combat. Has a reputation for single-handedly killing Onager Doom, Doom Crawlers? Because, generally speaking, towards the end of the game, I start getting desperate and a little bit punchy. And I go, you know what would be hilarious? Is if I did some sort of John Woo, like, slide under the robot with my power sword and gut it. That would be awesome. <laughs> And it happens yeah. a couple times, and that's memorable. And so, so that's the yeah. sort of thing is I'm, and even if it's not sort of deliberately suboptimal choices, it's it's not necessarily working on like what is my best target priority. And I can see from your face now you're just grinning. Yeah, like, to that's it's just a really fun. lovely time. Like, um, what about you, Matt? What are, what is some of your best and stupidest moments that you from the man who owns a bucket of grass? <laughs> I mean, buying buying a bunch. That's of not guts. a moment. That was a that was a six month of sustained stupidity. <laughs> that was that was um that was a yeah trend. Um, my the big one that stands out to me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna burst the bubble of every competitive player in a minute because I know for a fact that if I was sat here listening to this, I'd be like, yeah, but that's narrative players. I don't do that. And in a minute, I'm just gonna ruin their lives. Um, but no, the one that stands out most for me uh, is a fantasy GT. 15 years ago i don't know a long time ago um and i it was when demons were the new hotness Demon, keeper of secrets especially they were ridiculous they got in your face like turn one you couldn't do anything to stop them and they just blended you and i had a slant and i was like okay i'll go right i'll go laura fire maybe we get like wall of fire i'll get something to you know stop them i got fireball which isn't particularly great but i was like okay cool and my slant had a weird combination of uh, a fireball and an item called the Banehead, and the Banehead basically means double your wounds if you against a designated target. And I said, cool, I'm going to designate your Keeper of Secrets, because what else am I going to do? Turn one, 
they get right in my face. Cool, okay. End of next turn, it's over for me. Whatever. We'll see what we can do. Slan, throw a fireball at the Keeper of Secrets. It goes off the irresistible force, can't be stopped. I get six hits, I get five wounds, they fail, all of their saves gets doubled, and suddenly the Keeper of Secrets gets smashed and dies, and the list falls apart. Because it, it really relied on that Keeper of Secrets. And this is where I'm going to ruin it for competitive people, because I was never scared of demons again. And I know for a fact I wasn't scared about demons, because I remember playing them three other times at GTs, and I got smashed every single time. <laughs> and at no point did I ever go into it thinking, I've got a bad matchup here. And this is where... I, I kind of want to bring a little bit about risk-taking behavior. We talked about risk-taking behavior earlier on. And the things that you were talking about, Eric, you know, those kind of, um, those narrative moments, we pick them because they're awesome. We also pick them because we can't help it. Like, sometimes you'll make a conscious decision to slide your palatine under under an Doom crawl and kill it, and I, I love it, and I want it to happen every time. But there is, um, where risk-taking behavior is concerned, emotions tend to win out over what I mean by that is, because your Palatine slid under that Doomcrawler and killed it, you have that memory in your head. And the problem is, you don't, you know, five years down the line, two years down the line, a week down the line, you know, depending on how good your memory is, you don't remember what you rolled for it to happen. You don't remember that you rolled, oh, well, you needed to roll five hits, and you needed to roll five sixes, and you got four sixes somehow. What you remember is, I had a Palatine that killed a Doomcrawler. And so the cognition that you get in your head is that Palatines kill Doomcrawlers. And what that means is it means that you, every time you see a dune call, you go, I've got the perfect tool to deal with it, my palatine. And this is where we get into something uh, which I know a lot of people will be familiar with as a concept. It's quite a, a popular concept, but we get into the concept of um, of confirmation bias, it's called. If we start talking about purple cars, all you're going to see tomorrow is purple cars, even though you can't remember the last time you saw a purple car because we're thinking about it. And what happens is every time your dune crawler, every time your palatine goes and kills a dune crawler, your brain goes, yep, cool, no, Palatine's killed June Crawlers. Done. End of cognition. When it doesn't kill a June Crawler, you get uh, this cognitive dissonance. You get this kind of disarray. You, you get this this competing of thoughts, which is June Crawlers kill. I, I know Palatine kills June Crawlers, but Palatine didn't kill June Crawlers. And your brain knows the information that Palatine's killed June Crawlers. So what happens is you have to reconcile those two thoughts. And so the way your brain does that is it makes up a third fact. It says Palatine's to kill Doomcrawlers, but I didn't kill a Doomcrawler. What's the way I can make that work? Okay, well, clearly I was unlucky. Clearly something went wrong and it didn't do it. My dice were bad. We... Because, because exactly. if my dice were good, I would have done the thing. Exactly that. And you don't consider the fact that your dice needed to be way above average good. You just knew that you didn't succeed. And again, binary choice. Either my dice were good, my dice were bad. And so what ends up happening is you end up having these units that make it into competitive lists, especially people, you know, don't spend hours and hours and hours writing lists. People's favorite units end up in lists because three editions ago, my fire dragons blew up a land raider, which killed a bad and who is inside with a terminator. And so because of that bias, we just throw statistics out the window because what we remember is I felt really good when my Palatine killed a Doomcrawler. Oh, okay. Palatine, Doomcrawler, good feeling. That's now a big medley of emotions and, and ideas in your head. And so when I see a Doomcrawler, oh, Doomcrawler, Palatine. If I put them together, happy happens. Yay. Yeah, I have and I have the hard counter for this. And it's definitely not. This this happened to me, and, and, and this is something where it takes a lot of a lot of effort um to counter this. Because you are you are countering something that your brain likes making 
quick and dirty approximate rules. That is that is what human brains are really, really good at. And in a game where you're trying to keep track of a lot of things at the same time, you're keeping track of sort of a very complex state of affairs, your brain rolls back on those rules. So similarly, uh, back in sixth edition, and this is one of these like, yeah, you know, you know, five editions ago, this was great. And thus this must always do this. I had a, a desperate sort of last gambit where I ended up firing a unit of guardian defenders at a Wraith Knight. And it had some buffs, like it, it had been doomed, they had been guided. I was running out of ideas and I was just like, okay, maybe if I take some wounds off, I can deal with this later. And through a unusual combination of lots of hits, lots of wounds, and lots of uh, blade storm, which at the time sort of took your armor save away, I ended up killing this Wraith Knight. And, like, in my heart of hearts, I want to say a buffed-up unit of Eldar Guardians can kill a Wraith Knight. That's not true. The, like, the, the monster hunters of the Eldar list is not a unit of Guardians. But it does take me sort of consciously reminding myself. And at one point I did math it out and was like, oh, that was extremely unlikely. To, to sort of counter that bias in your head, because it's, it's very, very hard to do. And that is why I think you do see, as you said... Things that show up in people's lists because they they did a they did the good thing and it feels like that that should then be in your list. And I think one of the the sort of the thing that saves sort of the competitive um field from sort of collapsing because of this is that good units do this more. You know, I, I get good feelings from my retributors a lot because four multi-melters will kill most things. Right now, I imagine that most Tau players are really satisfied with most of their units and are, and are getting those endorphin hits, you know, um, things like that for, you know, for the Drukhari. A, a, a good unit is the Raider. You are going to take it anyway, and now it also just deletes things. That's, that's marvelous. And so I think one of, the, one of the keys is you get those sort of steady endorphin hits from good units. And so those sort of make their way in, and units that never really perform well don't really start making the cut because like you you nothing has ever done that the dangerous ones and the ones that you know as a narrative player you might seek out and as a competitive player you're trying to avoid seeking out are the the abnormal outlier experiences that make you go oh but this unit is great and it's great at this thing this this exactly correlates to um and I know I, I, we've talked about it before. Uh, when I wrote my dissertation, my dissertation was about uh, how we how we make um, how we apportion risk in gambling games. And there is a gambling game called the Iowa Gambling Task, which we use, which is the exact approximation of that. The very long story short of the Iowa Gambling Task is it gives you four choices. It says pick A, B, C, or D. And A and B looks great. A and B gives you a big prize, and C and D gives you a little prize. As you play, you realise that A and B pretty frequently also gives you a big punishment, takes away a lot of the money you've already won. So if you pick A and B only, you will lose. If you pick C and D, however, you, you, you quickly learn basically that A and B is bad and C and D is good, even though you first thought it was the other way around. And this ties in really nicely with what we were saying before about getting your reps in. Because like Eric said, if you don't play games that often, or you know, if you only run Guardians every now and then, you don't get to see them be bad right you get kind of you don't have enough examples of them sucking to i'm not saying they suck sorry i don't want to be just to be clear but you don't see them not kill the wraith knight enough they do suck yeah 
you don't see them not kill the Wraith Knight enough to overcome that. Like Eric says, the first thing we remember is Guardians kill Wraith Knights. Cool. Once you've done it a hundred times, it's happened twice, you're like, oh, okay, clearly they don't. And so that's where getting your reps in makes you a better player. And that's why those, coming back to what we were saying earlier on, that's why the competitive players are good. Not because they are, you know, innately great at math, but because they have seen things happen that what they see when they look at an army list, they see the full codex and they don't see, oh, Guardians, good against Wraith Knights. They see a more realistic representation of what a Guardian does because they've seen it do it a hundred times. What I was going to bring in was that there was, I'm speaking as somebody who's had children in the relatively recent past, is that children affect your decision making because you are exhausted and you I mean, I, in reading up about it, when I was when I, I had realised I basically had, if there was chocolate in the house, I would find it and I would eat it. And I'm not like a you know massive binge eater or anything, but and I'm sort of reasonably fit. But when I get tired and when I get in that when I get to that situation, my impulse control is measurably worse. You know, kind of. Uh, yeah, it didn't happen at university because I didn't have children, but and I was never as consistently exhausted. But it was a really interesting insight for me into how my decision making became measurably worse and my impulse control was measurably worse when I was when I was in that state of tiredness. And that surely has got to come into tournament play, especially when you're playing four or five games of 40k in, in a weekend. I mean, six games, seven games even, you know, that's that's a lot of 40k. And you're going to be falling back onto habitual um, decision making much more than you are about sort of conscious decision making. And so I wondered if that's something that that is is well established. And this is I'm just telling you stuff you already know. No, 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 not at all. It's actually not so. You would think so. Um, when you talk about like risk taking and stuff, the actual fatigue. Uh, as far as I've the little bit of reading I've done, actual fatigue isn't really that correlated with increased risk taking. It might take you longer to make the right decision, but you generally tend to get to the same kinds of decisions. However, you're absolutely right in that mental fatigue, like Eric was saying earlier on, we love quick, easy shortcuts. Our brain likes to go to, you know, there is a reason why if you see a black and white striped shirt, your first thing is, that's a robber. Because when you were younger, you saw all the cartoons you saw, black and white striped shirt, robber, lovely, easy cognitive shortcut. And you're absolutely right. If you have a unit that you know does really well, you are more likely to rely on your base instincts of what that thing does, which means, like we were saying, if that is a flawed cognition, if that cognition is Guardians killed Wraith Knights, you're more likely to fall back on that if you're fatigued, like mentally fatigued, because it's just easy for your brain to do. Which is why, again, if you've done your reps and you have a better accurate representation of what your list does, you don't fall into that trap. And that's why people can go on and win after playing six games. But you do you do see this advice with um, tournament play around things like one of the best pieces of advice if you want to win a tournament is stop drinking because that that does change your your risk behavior. It does change both your risk taking, your impulse control, your ability to make complex decisions. You know, if 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 you want to be in the the right mindset to win a game of forty k, your fifth beer is not it. And so there <laughs> there is a degree of that that you know does come into sort of how do you balance the social aspect of, of this hobby and events and things like that. And the answer is, you know, play narrative and then it doesn't matter. Um, 
but like that that is that is definitely a thing that that does take place and it's and i think it's important that you you know a lot of those things that we say minimize you know variability and things like that also minimize decision fatigue it's one of those things where if you talk to a lot of tournament players they have sort of the combos they're using for their stratagems and they know them like this these 5 cp are reserved for this thing that will take place when you know why event occurs versus having to every turn think about all your stratagems and all your command points and go okay what do i want to do um and we talked a little bit about this on on lost to the nails with sort of theme lists or skew lists or things like that where you take a very you know narrow version of what you your whole army is so you know all pain engines if you're a a Drukhari player, that reduces your decision fatigue a lot. There's only so many units, there's only so many things they can do, and there's only so many stratagems that apply to them. Um, that It's easier to play that list as well as that list can be played. Because you know it, you know, the the sort of peak of this is, is you know, Colin Ward's like 14 Armager list. That list is sort of front toward enemy and shoot. You, you you could play that asleep and it would do vaguely what it's supposed to do. And those those things are, you know, ways of reducing fatigue. And I think one of the things that does does happen for competitive players, because I, I did look, look at this at one point, I wanted to see if, you know, the scores narrowed or, or got wider as, as tournaments go on. And, and they, they genuinely don't. Um, so it's not like the games get, you know, fiercer or closer or anything like that. But I think there is a degree of sort of like like we've said, getting your reps in and sort of knowing knowing how your army works and having good heuristics, so sort of shorthand rules to fall back on that are valid, rather than, you know, game six of a tournament having to think about how your army works. Because by that time you're, you know, tired and very possibly hungover and almost certainly sleep deprived. And, you know, it's 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 hard to make really good innovative gameplay decisions in that state. Basically, if you're going to drink a lot, play a lot more first. If what, what I think we're essentially saying here, as as qualified statisticians, the better, the more games you play with your same list, the more you practice your list, the more you can drink at tournaments. I think that's basically what we're saying, right? That's that's the takeaway. Yeah, that's that. If you take nothing away from today, the more you practice and the more you get a reasonable understanding of what your list does, the more you uh, the more the more you can drink while you're there. But I would say this: the the, the heuristics point is is I'm gonna I'm gonna pop the narrative bubble now as well. Um, when you're talking about those kind of shortcuts and, and that kind of decision fatigue, it also comes to play with things like uh, like list building, and that means that lots of people, when they're writing narrative lists, are writing quite competitive lists because you look at a, you look you know you look at uh, what, what's your favorite unit, Tom? In your what when you write your Harlequins list, what's what's unit number one on the on the sheet? slightly false one because i've got a, i've got a list which has got um an army book which has got eight entries and i basically have to take them all um, <laughs> but uh, which is a, a okay but in my salamanders heresy list um you know my my hero was a badass and i would always pick him and his terminator bodyguard and yes i would always give him the cloak that gave him eternal warrior because one of my pet hates was being doubled out in 7th edition. I hated that rule. 
because to me heroes should not take one power fist to the face and crumble that's just not that's not the narrative yeah you're totally it right. was also the best gameplay you know mm-hmm. choice i mean he was genuinely he would stand about and lay about him and take on an entire unit of terminators by himself and that was cool wow did he or is that confirmation bias no no he did <laughs> he genuinely, he genuinely did I'm because of doubling out i mean like this was yeah. this was uh, you know i played shattered legion it was a very underpowered overall list because shattered legion has some serious drawbacks but that choice that choice was a good game no that was that was a min maxed yeah. i was going to make a, a big guy who had a thunder hammer and he would kill whatever he touched yeah. and then go down yeah. but he would do it yeah and this is it so the kind of the theme i think we've discussed throughout this is that a lot of our understanding of probability comes from the the emotions we attach to the outcomes of decisions we make and what that means for you and, and anyone else making a narrative list is the things i'm most likely to like and so the first thing that's likely to go in my list are the things that I look at and go, oh, that gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. The things that give me warm, fuzzy feelings inside are going to be things that in the past have given me the biggest chemical rush of, that was a fun thing that happened. And as we said, the more you play, the more likely it's going to be just the natively good units or the units that perform as they should. And what that means is you get this kind of chain of causality where you're picking a unit that you really like because you like it and it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling. But the more games you play, the more that warm, fuzzy feeling is because that unit is just good. And so it means that the, the, the first name on your narrative list is probably likely to be one of the most competitive choices you can make. And yet you ask people about it and they'll say, no, 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 I bring I bring my unit of five eradicators because I really love eradicators. But actually, they really love eradicators because six years ago, well, okay, eradicators is a bad example. Two years ago, they toasted a, uh, a, a Space Wolf Ram Flyer thing with you know, Wolf Horde in it. And then kind of from there, they've always been very good. And so... That warm, fuzzy feeling that I associate with liking them likely comes from good things they've done on the tabletop. And And narrative choices are... They match up with what happens in the lore. Yes. And in all armies are heroes in their own codexes. They always do epic stuff. So for me, you know, with the Harlequins, when my unit... When my troop master goes into a bunch of custodes and holds them up, by dodging them for three turns that's cool and it's you know that does give me the feel good because that is but that is also a narrative choice um and and so you know you generally don't pick i think eric was eric was talking about this right at the beginning before we came on air is is that um is that while winning isn't a theme also losing isn't so I'll throw that over to kind of explain explain that a bit. Yeah, so so there's this sort of shorthand that occasionally narrative players use to make fun of competitive players, which is like, oh, what's the theme of your army? And the answer is winning is the theme of my army. And and as much as that's sort of, you know, a, a, a criticism that's leveled of the like, okay, but what what is the story behind like 10 eradicators and a smash captain as the thing in your list? Um... Losing isn't, generally speaking, either. Most people's narrative of their army isn't, man, we are bad at fighting in the <laughs> grim darkness of the far future. And so the the example, and this, this comes up when people ask, you know, because people often think about thinking about the stats behind Warhammer and thinking about Math Hammer and things like this. Oh, that's a, that's a competitive player thing. And I think it's actually, there is some value there for narrative players in essentially checking to make sure 
that the picture they have in the head for how their army works and how their army actually works are the same thing. So the example I always use for this, because it is one of my favorite units in the 40k lore, is the Lehman Russ Vanquisher. In all the fiction, there's there's a, a section of one of the books about Talarn where it's talking about this solitary Lehman Russ Vanquisher as this apex predator tank that's like a genuine threat to an entire Space Marine armored battle group. That's not how it so, plays on the um, tabletop. A Lehman Russ Vanquisher is a Lehman Russ with a Lask. It's it's right. the the long barreled one that has a armor penetrating shot. It's supposed to be the anti tank Lehman Russ. Okay. Um, it it's essentially substitutes the the battle cannon that's supposed to blow things up with a longer barreled battle cannon that's it's essentially a hammerhead, but for the guard. Um, if you if you play Tau, it's it's supposed to be this single shot deadly anti tank tank. It has, as long as I have playing this, played this game, never, ever been that. And so if you, know, if you read that Talarn book, you fell in love with that image, you went out and bought three Lehman Russes, you painted them up, put them on the tabletop, and were like, cool, I'm going to fire at your tank. And you just, first of all, you missed probably half your shots. Um, indeed, probabilistically, you miss exactly half your shots. That's going to be frustrating for you. And so I think that's one of the things is to sort of check and see like, okay, if I have that image or like, you know, Tom, imagine, imagine how frustrating it would be if you read all the sort of fluff and narrative about uh, a Harlequin solitaire and how, you know, singular deadly they should be as opponents. And then they just always died. You know, they, they charged into a, you know, an understrength unit of intercessors and just got beaten to death. Imagine really hard, Tom. Yeah. Imagine really hard. Those, those, things, those things can be very, very frustrating narratively. And so it's one of the places where it's useful to sort of both check your intuition to, to say, okay, does this do the thing I really want it to do? You know, is this an effective anti-tank unit the way the, the narrative seems to suggest it is? Is this a good idea or a bad idea? So there's like a, there's a stratagem in the Sisters of Battle Codex where if you take a unit and it like hits another unit with both a bolter, a flamer, and a melta gun, you get bonuses. And like that's a very tortured combination. So you have to sort of think about what kind of thing would happen for that to take place. You know, those are all sort of thinking about the game and math hammer and thinking about the probability behind those things in a way that still works for, for narrative play. Um, and on the other end, to, to sort of, you know, tie this back to, to Matt's point, I think narrative players do bring good units to games because they, they get that endorphin rush. You know, I, I love that my Mortifiers in my Sisters of Battle list, which is the, the Sisters of Battle um, Penitent Engines, they just do work. They're great. Um, and so I take them because it, it always feels good to just slaughter a unit of Skatari. Um, that's, that's never not fun. But... Yes, unless you're an Admac player. But occasionally that does mean I will take a list that I feel like narratively is a a narratively appropriate list. So we were playing the, the Planet Strike Crusade missions recently, and I had this sort of penitent engine, forlorn hope sort of concept in my head for a list I built, which turns out on a very small board is a very mean list. And like, I could have probably figured that out if I hadn't built it, like as I was deploying units 
and sort of adding up power level on my fingers. Because like, it, it's not hard to be able to go, man, every unit here, if I get, if I roll to go first, I will get a first turn charge and delete whatever I touch is something you could math out pretty easily with those units. Or, you know, if you play enough, build the heuristic that like, yeah, those are, those are nasty. Um, and so like the, the sort of narrative player in me probably should have done a little bit of thought there and gone, mm, let's pump the brakes a little bit, back off on that. And, you know, bring, bring some units that will sort of help mitigate that a little bit. And so I think that's, that's, that's one of the sort of takeaways from this is that we all make these decisions and just trying to be thoughtful about them is, is a, is an approach. So there's something I really want to pick up what you said there. That was a really, really good point. And there's something right at the beginning, you talk about how you read talent books and you go, cool, Russes are cool. And it's something we haven't actually discussed yet, but something that's really, really important, especially in the world we have now, where we have multiple kind of websites and, and links and geo clubs where you hear lots of stories about other things that happen. A really important point we haven't really touched on yet is when we talk about, you know, getting these cognitions, you know, like a Palatine kills a, a Doomcrawler, you can absolutely pick those up secondhand. You can pick them up from stories you've heard, you can pick them up from games you've seen, you can pick them up from reading them online. Like, you can read a book and decide, you know, people listening to this now, in six months' time, will see a Palatine on table against an Abnek player and go, and someone out there, and, and don't think about this if you're listening, because I want you to do it unconsciously. But someone out there will go, for me, I charge that, Pal- I charge that Doom Crawler with Palatine. Because in their head will be the seed that Palatine's killed Doom Crawlers. In the same way, you know, you read a book like you read Gaunt's Ghosts, and suddenly in Gaunt's Ghosts, guardsmen are a hench and buff and unkillable unless they have a, a name you've not read before. And so people make choices based on things that aren't even game related. Like they read the lore, and like, like Eric was saying, and we are talking about this beforehand. You get this really big issue with players that the players tend to have, uh, where they have a really negative relationship with their armies because the army on the table doesn't do what it does in the books. And this is where kind of a, the new codexes are actually, I think, really strong because what the new codexes have done really well, I think, is they have built in these themes, right? So, like, Tau are really good at moving and shooting. Thousand Sons dominate the psychic phase. Games Workshop is really moving towards this new type of game design where books are. Books are powerful, don't get me wrong, but they are also very much themed to what that army does. And the other thing to note about what Eric was saying is that this is all about your perception. And what that means is it means that you and I, Tom, can play a game and come out with very, very different cognitions as to what happens. Because if you think about it this way, say you have a solitaire that charges into my unit and uh, I've got a unit of... Uh, five Deathwing Knights. Uh, your 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 uh, Solitaire charges them and blitzes them all, and you go away from them going, "Wow, what an amazing feeling!" I don't know how like that was to happen, but it happened and it was amazing. Solitaires are great. I love solitaires; they're fantastic. On the flip side, the other side of the table, the cognition I have going on now is, "Ah, oh, solitaires are broken. They're stupid. Oh, I hate solitaires." And so I will now go forward, and I will like because of something you did that that was probably statistically unlikely. The cognition I now have in my head is solitaires are broken, solitaires of power game. Is I'll see someone bring a solitaire and be like, oh, like, you know, uh, not me physically. I hope not to be that negative to my opponents. But but I will go away with this idea that solitaires are really good because I know less about you than solitaires. So I am more likely to be affected by it than you are because you know statistically you've seen a solitaire 30 times on the table because you've played your list 30 times. 
we're talking about getting your reps in. This is why knowing other books is really is something else that kind of uh, competitive players do really well. Because my only experience with Solitaire is that time that your Solitaire killed five of my Deathwing Knights. So next time I see a Solitaire, I'm going to give it a wide berth because they kill five Deathwing Knights. I'm going to tell everyone who listens, oh, Solitaires are broken. One, it's like 100 points, whatever it is, and it killed my five Deathwing Knights. And this is why one of the worst things that you can do is go and read, and this is, uh, this is kind of inflammatory, I apologise, go and read a report about what happened at table one on the LVO. Because they are superb players who've been playing for a long time. But we have third-hand news at this point, right? We've got someone writing who heard about what happened and saw the list and saw kind of what happened on the stream. At best, it's second-hand. But the person who's writing that didn't witness anything of that game. They had no stakes in the game, which means that they have an entirely different perception of the game. So by the time that gets to me, I'm now the third-hand part of this. And so what I see, my only experience of racks, I've seen nothing to a racks really the past year and a half. But yeah, if you, if someone came down to our, our club night and bought 20 racks, without knowing the list at all, I'd be like, oh, it's not a very, it's not a very uh, friendly list. And that is based off of no, no knowledge of racks, no knowledge of that person's list, no knowledge of how good that person is, purely because I read on a website about a game that happened, what, 1,500 miles away from me. I don't know how far Vegas is from here. A couple of thousand miles? It's definitely a couple I of thousand miles. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's at the very least, I an ocean it. and a continent. There are, there are some numbers I can do and some numbers I can do less well. But a serious point, I, I read about a game that happened 3,000 miles away, let's say. And then because of that, I know nothing about a game other than the racks one because they were good. Cool. Okay, racks are good. Oh, okay, now there's an article saying, oh, it was, it, you know, it was just a boring list. It was just racks. Oh, blah, blah. And I now have that person's cognition as my cognition. So now the next time I see racks, I go, oh, well, what a power gamer. And actually, I know nothing about the person, about the list, about the unit. But I've, I've adopted that and I now need to break that. Yeah. And there's this element of what those guys are doing at the top tables is to me an entirely different experience an entirely different game i mean going back to eric's point about the decision making is is Mm -hmm. that at the type of game we play we are making decisions which are just based on a fundamentally different desire for an outcome like it's not it's and it's not necessarily that you couldn't be on the same table with those guys and make those decisions is that your starting point is that's not my drive my drive is for a different outcome and even if it's like you don't have that experience they have anyway you know yeah speaking as uh, harlequins are I've, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts recently is is the void weavers are the new hotness people are talking already talking before they've even had a chance to play an event that people are going to be playing nine nine void weavers because you can squad them up and they're broken now I, out of sheer bloody-mindedness, all of last edition when Void Weavers, you never saw them, nobody knew what they were. I played a couple of them, or one of them, I magnetised my, my Star Weavers because it's the same chassis, and I was just like, I'm going to play them because they're kind of cool and fun, and I'm going to make them work because it's just a thing. And now I'm almost feeling that in my first run-outs down at the club, um, which, which Matt and I go to, um, is that... I'm not sure I'm going to bring any Void Weavers, despite the fact that I've been running them in my list with complete, um, you know, kind of, as I say, bloody mindedness, because they've been rubbish um, or perceived as rubbish. Actually, I never thought that that was entirely true. But when I come down this, hopefully tomorrow to, to the club, I'm thinking, actually, don't think I'll bring any Void Weavers, just in case somebody does think that I am that 
you know, that I'm bringing the, that unfriendly list, um, which is an odd feeling to have. Um, it is. And I think I've gone off down a bit of a tangent there. But it is, I, I think it actually is a sort of important notion for how we handle sort of not, not necessarily the math about this game, but the data about this game. Because there's been, and, and I've talked a little bit about this, that the, the actual stats for competitive Warhammer are actually fairly primitive when you sit down and think about it. But like we have gotten more sophisticated and it has become much more visible than when I started sort of Variance Hammer. The original sort of iteration of it was was number crunching the LBO and, and now people do it much better and much faster than I do. So I'm, I'm happy to not do that anymore. Um, but we have this sort of global look at just the competitive scene. We, we don't have the towel win rate in Garage Hammer. We have it for competitive games. We have, and like one of the examples, and I, I, I use this as an example um, for something recently, but uh, the Sisters of Battle Codex. If you're playing narrative crusade games, there's often a desire not to use named characters. Uh, so if you do that, you don't take Mormon Ball and you don't take St. Celestine. You have just removed two of the three default HQ choices for competitive 40k builds. The third choice is uh, Feral Stern, who is also a named character. Uh, there's another named character in there that doesn't make any sense for competitive play that is just great for narrative play and should show up in every list if you want to sort of upgrade your, your uh, Saint Potentia, who's, who's slowly becoming a living saint. So like the win rate notions for how Sisters of Battle lists do are not the Sisters of Battle lists many people are playing. And that's true for, for any army. We had, you know, the sort of the, exactly the thing you're talking about right now. And we started our uh, crusade campaign back in the, the fall of this year. Our local Jukari player was like, I think I'm not going to bring my Jukari because like I don't want to be that guy. And after about three weeks of I was playing a decentish sisters list, someone was playing a decentish admech list, he was like, no, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring my Jukari now. Like, it's okay. Because again, he he makes choices that amuse him. You know, he brings Lilith because he's painted a really well done Lilith model and it looks great and she's cool. Yeah, she's worse than a normal succubus, and it doesn't matter. Um, and so I think that's one of the things is we have this global look, but at a very narrow slice of the actual hobby. And people try to project that out to, oh, that guy brought a void weaver. Or like, you know, and I confess, one of our local players has started a custodes army and I'm like, could you not? But I don't, I don't, I don't, but I don't know anything about his army, you know. For all I know, it's it's all the, you know, Da Vinci Birdman guys who I have no idea if they're good or not. So they look cool. They're, they're good. Um, of course they're good. <laughs> like my impression is right now they're all good. But yeah. like, yeah. you know, what are the problems with that? And, and then, as you said, people are using different optimizations. You know, the most powerful way to use the bodyguards rule in competitive 40k is to tuck your bodyguards behind line of sight breaking and just never move them. And I did that for all of one game. Was like, that felt bad. So I'm not going to do it. And so like, I play the unit that does that in my codex. 
entirely differently than competitive players do because that's not that's not the experience i want there's no heroic moment for five women with spear and shields hiding behind a concrete barrier um while my cannoness stands there and points at things that's that's not what i'm looking for and so a lot of those things where we we read and we intake things and you know yeah read battle reports of the top table at lvo that's almost a different game and it's certainly a different game compared to what is being played locally by the person across from you. Sure. I think we're getting slightly um, off the kind of the... Uh, yeah, off topic. I mean, it's, it's it's all fascinating stuff. But one thing I wanted to move on to now is how game designers use these biases and the feelings and the emotional responses. Um, now, the... The, the examples I, I was sort of thinking about is when Death Guard were released um, sort of in, in relatively early 8th edition, I had a game which I still remember because it felt like a zombie movie, is that my army, and this is completely alien to the way I would normally play, I had, I had jump pack marines, I had uh, a couple of flyers, I had the storm talons, and basically I just went, oh my god, they're coming in a massive wave. And I put shots into them, and I put shots into them. And it was a gruelling experience, because I would land shots, I would put wounds through, they would fail their saves, and then they'd get their disgusting resilience tape, and they just would not die. And while I was doing it, it felt quite frustrating at times. I actually ended up um, winning that game because I was able to weather that storm. But it felt incredible incredibly thematic and to go back to what Matt was talking about before is this is something that in my view the modern codexes are doing really really well now with the Harlequins um, the new codex is out I haven't played much with it at the moment well I haven't played at all with it at the moment but looking at it is that their ways of durability are entirely the opposite of the game I've just described, where against the Death Guard, I was thumping, you know, las cannon shots and uh, assault ca assault cannon rounds into units, and they just they were hitting, they were wounding, but they just weren't going down. Well, with Harlequins, there's lots of ways of reducing their ability to hit you. You can reduce the range so that they can't even shoot at you. You can make a unit untargetable. They're all kind of tricksy ways, and I suspect overall. There still won't be a tremendously um, durable army. But initially, in that first couple of turns, the opposition army will definitely feel like they're fighting shadows, which is exactly what they are in the law. And it really feels that they can avoid fire and they can get in close. But at base, there's still Toughness 3 one-wound models who I'm paying nearly 20 points for. Because even, like, your base Harlequin is 13. If you give them any sort of weapon, a pistol or a close combat weapon, that's another 5. So you're 18 points. 18 points for a Toughness 3 one-wound model with a 4-up save. A 4-up save again, anything, because it's an involve. But it's still only a 4-up save. So mass lasgun fire directed into a troop is a terrifying thought. Um, and I, I feel like that's really, really good game design. Because feels like it does in the law and i'm just wondering if you can 
give me examples of where you think the game designers have manipulated those expectations or even at what point you're rolling dice to make you feel certain things about the units or the game. I, I think while I'm thinking of a, a specific example, the overall point there, I think statistically, and I think kind of we've, we've, we've verged away from numbers here because I think we always knew that actually most people can pull up a binomial calculator and work out the odds that 10 guardsmen will hit at least six shots, for example. Um, Google binomial calculators, you'll find loads of great ways of helping you on that. Um, this is where we come to choice, right? And this is where we've talked... We've, today has been talking about how the, the statistics are almost irrelevant in the face of the choices you make. And what the Harlequins thing is a really good example of, and this is where I think the game design is very good, is that 40k rewards you for making good choices, right? So if you make if you make the right choices and you choose things that are likely to succeed, then you will have a good time on average. Like on a, if you choose if you choose safe options, you're more likely to to, to you know have a a reliable outcome. What they've done really nicely, and the Harlequins is a perfect example is they have made it so that if you make the choices that are good, but good here defined as that fit the type of army that you're playing, you will have a good time more than ever. For example, like you say with Harlequins, the choice that you're making is, do I charge them forward straight off the bat? Do I shove them in a transport? Do I kind of hide up on a building and, and flip down? Well, okay, they've given you flip belt so you can ignore uh, vertical terrain. They've given you ways of making it so that you can't be targeted at certain ranges. Well, that means... That means it, it, you are being given the tools and given, therefore, rewards for making a decision like a Harlequin's general. By having a kind of, like, hang back, pick your moment to kind of pounce, by having those tools to be able to do that, by putting that buffer in between you and your enemy, you are being rewarded for making that decision to play at Harlequin's. In the same thing as Death Guard. If your army's thing is, I shrug a last cannon with ease, then the most rewarding play to play that, or the way, or the, the way to optimise on that, is I'm going to march up the middle of the board, I'm going to claim the centre of the board, and dare you to kill me. And that is what Death Guard do. And so by building the rules in such a way that if you play the army in the way in which they operate in the law, then probabilistically, the, if you play that army to theme, you will, you will have the best chance of being successful with it. I think there are also some relatively bad examples in the law. Um, I don't want to dunk on G-Dub too much, but um, Orcs and Tyranids. Tyranids is going to be fascinating to see what comes out with it. Because in the lore, what do we see with Tyranids? We see swarms of aliens charging over parapets, blitzing guardsmen. That's kind of the only experience we have with them in the lore. So it'll be interesting to see if they can make that idea of simply, I put my models down on the table and charge towards you and say, can you remove enough of me? Can you build that into a book? You know, look at the Orcs. Well, can action. you make that fun on both sides? Exactly. That's exactly it. And like Orcs, for example. Orcs, they didn't do that with. They didn't say, boys are now nails, and you charge them forward. Unless your enemy can deal with them, you win. They went down the, the different angle of, okay, cool, the Tinkerers will make their buggies really cool and manoeuvrable and fast and crazy and stupid. Um, but yeah, long story short, I think that the thing they're doing with games at the moment is making it so that the statistically likely things to happen, i.e. the things you have the tools to make happen most often, most reliably, are the things that suit the theme of your army be that hang back and pounce when the opportunity is right with Harlequins or stand in the middle of the board and dare you to kill me with Death Guard. And I think there's an important um, point you made, Tom, about when you make the important dice rolls. So for the Harlequins, it, it doesn't feel right 
for a Harlequin to absorb a lot of fire and not die. What you need to do is miss. Like, it, it's not fun if a T3 model with a, a pretty bad save somehow gets hit a bunch of times and makes it through. It's much more Harlequin-y for you to have just, you know, frantically unloaded an entire clip of a bolter at this guy and had just nothing hit. And so that's a very front-loaded dice mechanic, which is that invulnerable save. You know, that's, that's or, or even before that, the, you know, reducing your chance to hit, reducing your range. Those are, before I start making wound rolls, that's when my protection is. Versus you have Death Guard where it's, yeah, you, you can hit me all day and it doesn't matter. You can hit me and you won't wound. You can wound and I'll save. I can fail my save and it won't matter. You can go even farther to the Sisters of Battle where you can do all of those things and it won't matter because I will still hit you before I die. So, you know, with Penitent Engines or Mortifiers or, or Repentia, that theme is like, oh yeah, they're all dead and that's okay. And that's, or um, the same thing is true with the, the mechanics for the Wolfen because that should feel like... A... And, and, and in the um, in the narrative, the, the, the Repentia are... They are, they are actually seeking yes, death Yes, they are, they are seeking death so out. So you're being rewarded with that hit on death by doing what they're supposed to do in the law. And this should absolutely be someone who's bleeding to death, is missing an arm, and is still fighting. Um, And so that's that's sort of how you do that. And then on the, the flip side, for the Sisters of Battle, the Acts of Faith mechanic is in those pivotal crunch moments where something absolutely has to go right. The Emperor is there. And that is done by removing the variability of the dice. If you need a six, you spend your act of faith, your, you spend your miracle dice that has a six, and you've got it. You had to pass that. You did. And so that's a very powerful for that, you know, single beam of golden light from the clouds type moment for them. Uh, similar to the, the new Eldar one for the Strands of Fate is very much a, you're sort of subtly manipulating fortune and that feels like something the Eldar should do. Like the Eldar... But it's also kind of uncontrollable and untangible and you're kind of riding the whims of fate. Exactly. But like, but the, the, the Eldar, and you know, this is sort of shorthanded as, you know, cheeky Eldar swear word. The Eldar shouldn't be fighting fair. You know, the, their, their thumb should always be a little bit on the scale. And so that's sort of how that army works. And I think it's it's a point with a lot of the new codexes. Again, not, not all of them, but a lot of the new codexes, they feel like they should feel. Whether or not they feel like they should feel playing another army that is the hero of their narrative is another question. But I sort of never feel like my, you know, my sisters or my Eldar don't play like they should. And you're like, yeah, like, or like for the, the Admac who I, I play an Admac opponent a lot, his stuff feels like techno robotic nonsense. And like that, that weapon does what? Um, and the answer is like, yeah, it has like 16 adjectives on it and it just destroys things. And it's like, okay, that's fair enough. It, it looks like a ray gun. And so those are the types of things that I think they're doing really well in codex design. And you can you can even go down to things like statistically with, with some approximation, D3 plus two and D6 
will give you the same average number of hits. If you want to portray a weapon as temperamental, D6. If you want to portray it as reliable, D3 plus 2. And so you can you can get feelings like that where like, okay, we had to, you know, cajole the machine spirit into working, but like when it gets feeling bellicose and angry, it does real, really cool things. That's D6. Eldar weapons shouldn't feel unreliable. They're Eldar weapons. So dark, that's that's why it made perfect sense to me, whether it's balanced or not, for Dark Lances to be it's D3 plus three, I think. Uh, for for damage. Like yeah. that should like a Dark Lance should punch through things. It's a Dark Lance. Um, so that's where I think a lot of this comes in, is you can manipulate little things like that. You know, if you want so if you want a unit to be able to make the charge, give them rerolls. Give them an addition. So, you know, uh Repentia, if they're near the Repentia Superior with the, the whips, uh, they do D3, uh, 3D6, pick 2. That's a much more reliable, you're much more likely to get at least an average charge. And you're considerably more likely to get the really long bomb, you know, I need an 11-inch charge and won't that be spectacular, with that unit. Because that's how you can manipulate the statistics and it does get to this idea of, of playing to your army's theme. You know, you're, you're going to have a rough time if you want to play a gunline Harlequins list. Because, A, you're not putting out enough damage to do that. And B, in, contra in contrast to something like a rack list, the Harlequins aren't built to just sit on an objective and take fire. Because they'll start missing those, you know, you'll start failing those four-up saves. And then you'll start dying fast. And so you can't absorb that fire. Whereas, you know, a Necro army, for example, you can park a unit of warriors on an objective and they'll be there for a long time. And so th those are things where you can sort of manipulate these, these dice mechanics to, to give certain things a certain feel. I think there's, there's, I think to back that up, I think there's two examples I want to pull up. Um, the first, and I don't want to, to start flame war. Um, let's look at the tower rail gun. So, uh, the tail railgun, it's been publicly known, it does a shitload of damage, as it should, it's a big-ass railgun, but the point so of contention... So is that the 12 damage one? Yes, or, that's or, a, yes. It's, yeah. the, it's the flat 9 plus some mortal wounds, something like that. Sure, yeah. D6 plus 3 or something. Um, but they did the point of gripe I've seen with a lot of people is it ignores invulnerable, so it ignores all saves. And you can understand, you know, if you can only take a certain amount of damage, well, it doesn't matter if half your body's blown off, you're feeling it. But the thing that people team seem to be taking a lot of umbrage with, especially narrative-wise, is why does it ignore invulnerable saves? And that's because, like, like you were saying, Eric, this invulnerable saves, they're just another dice roll, right? They're just, they're just an extra type of saving. Like, functionally, it's a dice roll. But it feels, it has a feel to it. It feels ethereal. It feels intangible. It, you know, an invulnerable save is something special. It is the grace of the Emperor. It is kind of, you know, having a shimmer suit so you're not really where you look like you are. It, it an invulnerable save doesn't feel like you're getting shot and, abs and absorbing the hit, like Eric said. It feels like you are some way other than physically resisting it. It feels like kind of the antithesis to armor, um, which I think is why that jarred a lot. I think the other point uh, you made really well there, talking about um, kind of themes and stuff, it is very prevalent when you take the flip side and look. I think Imperial Guard is a really interesting book to look at compared to the current books because 
when you see guard lists, you see the same colors. You see tank commander lists with like four tank commanders, well, three tank commanders, and a bunch of and and they they don't feel like an imperial guard list. When you look at a list, you know, very few people are taking, you know, a senior commander and then six units of guardsmen and a basilisk and a Lehman Russ and it, it it doesn't you don't get these kind of mixed arms lists which you get in the fluff because they just don't operate and and guard you not not really seeing them anywhere. I think because they're not particularly narratively rewarding at the moment. Um, but also the same thing, and I want to pick up on as as a game design mechanic and something they're moving away from, and just kind of touch on what you were saying, Eric, about this 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 notion of using different amounts of dice and different uh, scales of dice to make something feel reliable or temporary. Is guard is indicative of I think a, a problem you have when you just design a generic book, in that a battle cannon for a long time was better than any other gun on a Leon Russ because it threw a lot of dice at the enemy. And so it just became, what throws the most reasonable amount of strength stuff at something? Well, okay, battle cannon. Okay, right, fine. Battle cannon's not strength 10 like a demolisher cannon, but it is D6 shots. Okay, it's not doing, you know, D3 plus, 3 plus D3 like a like an eradicator, uh, vanquisher, but it is getting, you know, it's getting a lot of shots. And I think that's an example where it'll be really interesting to see where they take it next, because for a while a lot of the kind of game design that we've now moved away from was how many dice can I throw at you? The best way to kill a tank was to throw 50 las guns at it because statistically speaking, 50 las guns needing, okay, you need fours and fives to wound, but you're getting so many of them. And so this new step towards making weapons more deadly and kind of more narratively interesting, I think is really good for the game. Yeah, I think the the tower railgun is a really good example because I think the the pushback from it was what is an invulnerable save and why is it not working? And for, for some armies, it makes sense. You know, if you're talking about the ion shield as a, on a knight, yeah, that it, it overwhelms and blows out the ion shield. It's like, okay, fine. But if you're talking about a Harlequin, that's, I was never where you thought I was. And if you're talking about a sister of battle, that's literally, you know, the divine hand of the emperor. What bit of Tau technology foils that? Is, is sort of a, a question, but I think I think the guard is a, is a good example because, yeah, volume of... And it's weird because volume of fire is their narrative. But it's it's hard to balance that with, you know, how do you, how do you build an army correctly? And one of the examples I use a lot is I, in 7th edition, always had trouble being mad at Space Marine players who bought Gladius detachments because they were dropping a demi-company of Space Marines. And that was awesome. Like, yeah, they got free drop pods. On the other hand, it was just a bunch of Marines coming down and drop pods. And that was really cool. And so, like, I had a lot of trouble being mad at, like, okay, but this is the intro to Dawn of War. That's awesome. Um, And so, like, there, there are, you know, it's, it's that tricky bit with, you know, is it balanced and does it feel correct are, are two different questions. But I think they are doing a, a reasonably good job with most armies with making the dice mechanics feel correct. Um, so one of the things someone talked about with um, the Custodes army, and, and one of the things that's really good at and one of the things that they wanted to preserve, I think it was Goonhammer, while sort of tuning that list down a bit, was the idea that the Custodes are prepared for whatever you've brought. That they have sort of the counterspell to your thing. Right now, it's a little bit too strong, but that's a feeling they should have. Is like they they are 
essentially ancient singular warriors, they have seen this before and know how to handle it. That should be their feeling. It's just perhaps a little bit too tough right now. And the problem is that's and that is um indicative sorry we're verging away from Cisco, but that is a problem with the narrative, not with the custodes, right? Like the custodes feel right. If you drop if you're if you're dropping an army of custodes into a situation, that should be unstoppable. Like that narratively speaking, like you look at you look along, you see two or three custodes, you know, destroying an entire gene silicon or something. So narratively, and it's always one Marines have had, you know, if I drop in fifty tactical marines against your hundred guardsmen, there is no way in hell you should win that. Yeah, it's a, and it's, it has this weird mouth. It's thing. absolutely a narrative problem that like a mass deployment of custodes should not be a fifty percent chance of victory. Yeah. Like if if Trajan Valoris is on the field, that battle should be won. But but that's hard to then write a game mechanic around. And and that's it. I think this is where you have to kind of and it's, it comes back to that kind of we were talking about kind of risk taking behavior and and choosing heroic moments so like custodes you, you know they are heroes in combat so i would i would happily wager that custodes would expect their stuff to punch above their weight more because that's what they do because that's the the impression we have of custodes i i would be willing to bet and i don't know how we say this maybe we'll set up a study eric i reckon that you would find custodes would custode players who really like custodes and are playing it for like because they love custodes, would be more likely to overestimate their unit's abilities compared to, say, Dark Eldar. Because custodes in the lore, we know custodes are badass motherfuckers. Are we allowed to swear, Tom? <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, custodes are badass motherflippers, right? They That's are... worse. That's, <laughs> that's objectively a worse thing to say. Yeah. The, thing... <laughs> the thing with custodes is they're super good, right? Yes. And so... <laughs> You can understand why I would believe that the odds would be that statistically, if I charge my three custodes into your unit of ten intercessors, I should expect to win that fight because that is the cognition I have, right? I, I statistically, without looking at their rules, I should expect me to win that fight because that's what custodes do. And that's kind of where I think we get torn on a... That's where kind of decision-making does kind of come out of the narrative and kind of affect how we see the statistics of 40k. I think that's a really good point, a really interesting sort of thing. I'm willing to bet they don't even really sort of do the mental math behind it. Because, like, mm. the custodes charged, they should win. Um, I find myself, you know, when we talk about this, you know, that humans value or, or devalue losing something they expect more than getting something they don't expect to sort of bring this back to the, the original premise of the show... Um, <laughs> I struggle with that. I have in, in my crusade list, I have a unit of Zephyr who is essentially assault Marine sisters of battle, um, who are great. Objectively, they are, they are seven crusade points. They are, they are a hell on wheels, uh, unit. I expect them to just completely erase whatever they show up in and like, they have a banner that lets them reroll their charge distance. So I expect them to drop down and just charge and end whatever I point them at. They, But at the end of the day, sort of, you know, similar to the Harlequins, they are strength three, T3, single wound models. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes three of them die in Overwatch. Sometimes, you know, I miss a couple rolls and I needed all of them to do the thing. And they don't. And that feels... And so I sort of 
I sour on them a little bit, even though objectively they are great units. Because when I do drop them down and they do erase something, that's them performing to expectation. That's what they were supposed to do. Which leaves them in sort of an awkward place where they can only do what they were supposed to do or fail. There's not the like, or be really, really, really awesome. And I feel like that's the, the hardest thing. And, and GW has struggled with this for additions. With writing elite armies like uh, the, the Grey Knights... Custodes, um, Deathwing Terminators, is I think the expectation when you're like, you know, the Deathwing has deployed, is your only options are you win or you failed to win. There's no like long odds for the Deathwing to win. The same thing is true for the Grey Knights. You know, the, the Grey Knights aren't supposed to lose. Like it takes, you know, Angron and a hundred Bloodthirsters to actually be a problem for the Grey Knights. So what happens on the tabletop when like an uppity unit of guard wipes out your Grey Knights. But that feels wrong in a way that's really hard to write mechanically. And I think that's always been their issue with extremely elite armies. And you can sort of write it off as like, okay, so Space Marines aren't as cool as they are in the fiction because like prop Imperial propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it's really hard with something like the Custodes. Because like, no, seriously, they're awesome. How are they losing this? And you can do that in very small games where it's like, okay, they so they didn't hold the objectives because there's not enough of them. But in a lot of games of 40k where it comes down to just, okay, but yeah, kill the other guy. It's really hard to not feel like that's the expectation rather than something that should happen about half the time. And that's that's, I think, a very difficult design space to be in because you're sort of, you're weighting everyone's probability. You know, it's, it's the same thing we talked about with like, 70%, a lot of people treat that as basically certain. I think a lot of people come into playing a game with those elite armies with the sort of mentality that my win should be basically certain because that's what my fluff and my codex and a lot of, as, as Tom said, at the sort of white room, you know, planet bowling ball, all my stratagems, all my command points. Like, what if I just blow 12 command points on this one charge? Like, yeah, it's going to one-shot anything on the board. But when you get there, you don't have 12 command points anymore. You have seven because you failed some, you failed some saves and you needed to reroll something, et cetera, et cetera. And you get to a, a, a much more sort of uncertain place. And I think that's, that's not a good game feel. But on the other hand, on, you, know, you do have an opponent. And that opponent's game feel, and this is where I think the Tau struggle a bit, and I think the Admech did too, with the first couple turns of playing them is you taking models off the table. And that's never fun. Uh, like one of one of the things I have said about orcs, and, and it's one of the reasons I like and wish sort of boy-heavy orc armies were more common, is even when I lost, it's still fun because I killed a whole lot of orcs. Um, and you know, like the 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 the, the grot list is the, the best example of this. It's like, yeah, you lost, but you literally just waited I have grots. but you waited into grots, and there look at this pile of now dead grots. Um, and I think that that's, that's one of the things that the elite armies really struggle with is how do you give your opponent the feeling that you're doing something? And I think, yeah, I think that is probably the best summary I can think of everything we've talked about for the past, however long this show now will be once you've edited it, Tom. But the 
people's dice don't suck, right? Your dice are, the longer you're playing, the more likely your dice are average, I'm afraid. Um, all those people out there, Gur, if you're listening, you don't roll more ones than anyone else, I'm afraid. It's just become a bit of a meme and we notice them more. I think what happens is I think people just have an expectation of what their list should do. And if it doesn't meet that list, they assume that the reason it didn't happen is because they had bad luck. Now, I want to also be very clear. I'm not advocating against call-outs moments because do you know what? Sometimes your Palatine will charge a Dune Crawler and it will kill it. And it'll be amazing. And in 10 years' time, you'll be talking about it on a podcast. Sometimes your, like, 500 Grots will somehow manage to, like, take down a Warhound Titan. That's fine. These things will sometimes happen, and that's what makes a hobby worth doing. My, the reason I'm glad I'm a statistician who plays Warhammer is I can never lose a game, because one of three things happen. Either it's a close game, and the dice went the way they should, and it came out, and it felt about average, and the best man won, or the best player won, I should say. The other two outcomes are both the same, which is that one of us had statistically interesting dice. For that game, your dice were hotter than mine, my dice were hotter than yours, so either we have had a game that's played out exactly as it should, and my equilibrium is, is maintained, or one of us has statistically interesting dice. And as a statistician and a numbers nerd, I'm kind of there for either outcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that went funny is always sort of an interesting outcome for things. Also, while we're on the topic... In an attempt to fix your bad dice, do not go out and buy casino dice. At one point, I was yeah. extremely bored waiting for somebody to pick up a table and rolled, I think, five different brands of dice for about 300 die rolls each and recorded the results. And they were all basically uniform in a way that unless you are literally running a casino, it doesn't matter. Like, your dice, your dice are not weighted. Your dice don't hate you. They're just dice. And on that note, I think we've come to a wonderful end point. Um, guys, it's been fascinating. I have to admit, when Matt first, we were talking about the episodes, and he said, I want to do an episode on statistics. I went, do you? That's nice. And I didn't know how we'd get an episode out of it. But we've been going for loads of time, and it's been brilliant. So, guys, thank you so much. Um, I'm so pleased both of you came on because if it had just been one of you and me, it wouldn't have been half the programme. Um, so, Eric, thank you so much. And Matt, thank you very much as well. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for having us. If anyone wants to get in touch, um, we are on 40 Curious with a K on Facebook, on Instagram and um, on Twitter. Um, and if you want to contact by email, it's 40curious at gmail.com. Um, if anyone does have any ideas for future episodes, any feedback on the episodes we've already done, please do get in touch. It's absolutely fantastic when people do. I've already had a few people get in touch, even after the first episode has, has only been released for a couple of weeks. And it's been joyous to learn about what it what interests them. Um, so we're working on episodes for kind of the next season. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. And um, may the dice always be in your favour. Half the time. Just one quick note before I sign off altogether is that I will be taking August off for the school holidays, but we'll be back with you in September as normal. Until then, stay safe. Bye.